Welcome to another episode of A Pint with Shawnee B coming to you from the Chilterns. Where are the Chilterns? They're in Buckinghamshire, very nice kind of wooded, oldie English part of England. And I'm with a person who I've known for, would you believe, almost 20 years now. Those of you listening from Australia will know Julia Ross as the queen of recruitment, even though she hates that term, I think. <laughs> but she built from scratch her own recruitment company, took on the big boys, broke glass ceilings and still believes in doing that and has always been a mentor to women as they try and carry on the the work that needs to be done in that area, which we'll talk about, I think, immediately. And now she has sold it all and she is living in the ideal home that she always said she wanted to live in back in her home country of England. I'm welcoming to a pint with Shawnee B, Julia Ross. Hi, Sean. Welcome. <laughs> How are you liking living in your ideal home? Um, I love being back in England. When you've lived a long time in another country, there's always wonderful things about that country. And the things that are wonderful about Australia are almost juxtaposed to the wonderful things about England. They're basically the same, the opposite sort of pros and cons on each What would page. your three pros of Australia and three of England be? Well, number one's really easy for Australia, the weather. Weather, yeah. <laughs> Egalitarian um, society. If you're without money in Australia, it's not as tough. Yeah. Um, so it feels nicer to live somewhere that everyone is looked after and that life's not too bad if you don't have much. And I've got lots of friends there, so and a lot of familiarity. Um, Sydney lost its um, shine for me in some ways. It sort of wanted to show off yeah. rather than becoming more rich in culture and having more depth. I relate a lot more to the natural side of England. The countryside in England yeah. speaks to me a lot more, so I naturally feel at peace here. Yeah. Even in London, looking at the buildings makes me feel a lot more grounded yeah. and a lot more peaceful, even though it's a very hectic city. It might not be as obvious, but if you really needed help from someone... I think that you're more likely to get someone to stop and help you in, in England. England. Right. The feeling that people have for family and friendship is deeper. There's something that the English culture has from its heritage that makes people um, feel more about friendships and family. It's funny, the dichotomy that you've just talked about is also really reflective in your own life, in my view. I always used to say to you that there's, there, there, there was, when I knew you back in Sydney, the two Julias. Almost the Sydney Julia, which had to be playing at the big boys' table. You know, Australia, one thing I didn't like about it was this kind of colourful racing identity culture in business that it has, which seemed very juvenile to me. Uh, but you had to play at that table. And then you had this other part of you, which I think was the grounded you, the, the roots, even though we talk about maybe some of your early life, which wasn't necessarily idyllic, but it was still where you came from. And there was a, there was this kind of two parts of you that were kind of gravitating, I think, between, you know, one being dominant and one sort of wishing and the other being dominant. Is, do, is that fair? Or? Yeah. I think to a degree, wherever you are, as a woman, there has to be two sides to you. It's a bit like watching Queen Victoria. I need to be dominant as a queen yeah. and subservient as a wife. There has to be two sides to you to be a success in business. You have to become a very driven person that will do most things to be successful. That isn't who I am. But if you want to play in that game, there are certain things you have to be willing to do. That doesn't mean to say I did things that I think were wrong. It's just not necessarily the way I would have liked to play things in an ideal world. Mm. So just to give some perspective here to anyone who doesn't know who Julia is, Julia set up a, a recruitment company in Australia in the, I guess, 90s. Mm -hmm. Grew it from a very humble beginnings to an IPO in 2000 and eventually selling the business in about 2010, around that 
time was it? Mm-hmm. I think. And she built this business up and was was kind of the go to example in Australia of a woman who who took on what was a very chauvinistic and male dominated business environment and, and made a go of it. Your background, though, let's start here, was anything but that. Tell me where you come from and what your early life was like. Um, I was born in Cheshire. My father was basically a labourer in the construction industry. His father was from Ireland. He moved over to Glasgow, grew up there, and then married my mother um, and moved to England. Mm -hmm. We lived quite a humble life. Not that we went without much um, until my mother decided that um, she didn't really like living with him anymore and um, took us to go and live elsewhere and then life was considerably tougher. Um, I'm the youngest. Which would have been a brave thing for I mean, so that your your dad had booze issues and stuff like that, right? And when Mm -hmm. when you, you were the youngest? Youngest of eight children. Of eight children. Okay, so for a mother to up stakes and leave a man back then was not the done thing and very difficult to do right very difficult she was considered you know um you probably shouldn't use any words that you <laughs> might use um when i'm referring to my mother but certainly her family didn't um, communicate with her anymore so she was left on her own in very difficult circumstances There was a piece there, though, I remember you telling me before, that you were left behind. Um, To start off with, she left the three youngest and took the eldest with her because she could cope with that. And then she gradually came back for the younger children. I was too young to identify emotions that they were feeling because I think I had too much going on in my own daily existence to really think about what my mother or father might be going through. But so what was going on in your daily existence back then? What was happening? With, with, you know, Do you um, remember just, that time? Yeah, I was just trying to survive, really, right. and hope that someone would buy some shopping and feed me something, right. and I'd be okay. There are some memories that are okay. You know, my father you know, would cut the end of a loaf for me and put best butter on it, as it was called then, and... Mm. You know, there were pleasant things like that. And there were awful things where sometimes you'd go out drinking and I'd be left on my own in the house. As a small child, that being quite difficult to cope with. Mm. I don't really remember much of when my two older siblings were still there. My most vivid recollections are when I was left on my own with him. Um, because that was a very difficult road to to walk. He was quite strong Glaswegian, so if he asked you to do something, you invariably jumped very quickly to do it. (laughs) So you eventually went with your mother, so she eventually got the whole brood back together. Yes. She was only in an apartment to start off with when she got a house for us all and moved us all in. I mean, although it was pretty awful, she did try to do her best to get us all back together. We were eight children and we had two bedrooms. Right. So it wasn't You used best. to talk about uh, you being stuck under the eaves of the house. <laughs> it was an interesting situation. There was nothing abnormal about that at the time for working class people. I've was got, there always someone worse off than you? Is that kind of a, yeah, yeah, I've yeah. got friends who came from middle class families that lived very poor existences. Mm. Whereas, you know... We were together, so we had one another. Um, Being the youngest, I think it was worse for me um, because there was a gap between me and my next brother. So I was the most on my own. I think it was five years, whereas most of the others were within a year or two of one another. Did you have any feeling back then? Did you think that you had to get out of this, change it? Well, the earliest memories... Did you have a drive? I remember of things that would have influenced me was listening to my older brothers discussing how they were going to get out of it. One of my main jobs was to run and find sticks for the fire. So when I got back and they lit the fire, we tend to all huddle around because it was pretty cold. 
you know, you scrape the ice off the inside of the windows of the house. <laughs> so we, we would huddle quickly around the fire as soon as it was lit. And then they'd sit and talk about how they were going to make life better. And you were the little one just shutting up and listening. Yeah. So sponging I, it up. Yeah, I'd just sit there and listen to what was going on. And when I heard them all say they were going into the building industry in one way or another, I just sort of thought that was what I would do. So right. that was the first And were you bright in school? What was your school memories? No. no, just an average... Just, well, average as far as I know, it was very difficult because, you know, I was moved quite often. I don't know if, indeed, if I ever went to school when I was with my father. I then went to a convent school for the longest period of time, just a Catholic school. So it wasn't a private school, but it was very well run. And I did start um, developing well there. And Is that you're 12 or so now? Yeah, yeah, around that sort of age. So had I been given the chance of a consistent education, I yeah. don't know how I would have done academically. One of your brothers is very close to you and he passed away young, right? Um, my oldest brother, yes. William. Mm. Well, so what age were you when that happened? Because I know that had a big effect 12, on your life. 11, 12, something like that. Yeah, and he, you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but he, he, no, no. he drowned, right? Or is it, yeah. Yes, I spent a lot of time with him because he got married fairly young yeah. and it was very good for me to get out of the house and go and stay with him because I could get a bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> so he was about, what, 20 years older than you or something like that, was he? Yeah. Yeah, okay. You know, so I used to spend quite a lot of time with him and do nice things with him. So I got to know him better than most of the family, probably. And then, um, unfortunately, he was, um, I don't know what you say, it was an accident. He fell off a bridge into a river and was drowned. Yeah, that was quite traumatic for me. They handled it very badly in as much as they let me see him in the coffin and, you know, they did the old-fashioned thing, you must touch him, you must do this and sort of, which was pretty horrendous. They were talking very much that his lungs weren't full of water, he just choked. And I couldn't understand on that basis why they couldn't just warm him up. And then when they screwed the top down on the coffin, I remember watching and I think it's given me a lot of issues about being buried alive and all sorts but of you, things. But you have and this you have this early part of your life where there were there was you know, you were the runt of the litter and there was a not quite abandonment but almost abandonment and then of course this happening and so you know, you're still only a young girl. You're getting a lot of this kind of life trauma thrown at you one after the other. So when you when you come to you sort of leaving school, like were you did you get hardened and inured a bit or did you just I don't think I I thought very much about that sort of thing. And no, I don't think I hardened. I don't think I've really ever hardened off to things. It's just something that you have to accept in life if there's a lot of... We come back to the chronological thing. Just want to talk one topic there, just about that issue of being hardened and where it comes from. Because you did speak earlier about the fact that you needed to play this game of business... Where are we at with glass ceiling right now? Because you have been a, a staunch fighter for women in business and also you're a great person to go to. You give an awful lot of your time to women who are trying. Where is that state of affairs in the world now? My response would be marginally better because I don't think anything can become better until we have people coming through that are not conditioned. We are all preconditioned. If I walk into a house that's dirty and the kids are not well looked after, I'll immediately think that the woman isn't doing what she should be doing. You don't immediately think, you know, what's this man doing? We're all preconditioned and fall into all sorts of traps ourselves, And I don't think we can unravel that. Genetic behaviour is now approved science. We will move and use expressions that our parents do. So there is no reason for us not to believe that we didn't get a download of their brain 
also um, right. and their memories and their thoughts when we were born. So if we did get that and we got their parents and their parents and their parents and their parents and are screwed. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take a long time for this stuff to unravel. Bit by bit it is unraveling and I now, certainly my son, almost has the opposite issue that he sees women as quite strong. Yeah, yeah. And the roles are almost reversing. I feel that it's going to take quite a lot to get us to where we need to get to. And I don't believe it's just government quotas or saying you cannot, cannot, cannot do this in the workplace. Yeah. I think there's a lot of conditioning that we need to sort out in order for it to change. Because unless you change people's perceptions, it's not going to truly change. So if you're talking about a 20-year-old female now, mm. I think she stands a great chance of having equality. Yeah. But if you're talking about a 40-odd-year-old executive, yeah. no, she's still not got parity. Parity is not only in pay gaps, it's in everything that happens in the workplace. So had I not been the personality that I am, I couldn't have survived. I would have crushed myself when I listed on the stock exchange if I'd worried about the institutions talking to my directors who'd only been appointed a week before selling the stock. Mm. The fact that everyone wanted to ask the suits the questions yeah. rather than me. Yeah. The founder and the, the builder of the whole thing. The builder yeah. of the business. If I'd worried about that and been antagonistic in those meetings, I would have never sold the stock. But you know? you're still playing a subservient I have to manage this suit yep. guy, yep. which is also unfair. It's grossly unfair yeah. and there's so many occasions in lots of areas of life where even now I'll ask a man yeah. to call somebody if I can't get the resolution I want because another man will respond to a male voice. <laughs> He'll mansplain it. Yeah. yeah. It's not nice. It's not what I want the world to be like. Mm. But what am I going to do? Fight it forever? So, no, I mean, it's, it, the sad thing is that you have to come up with tactics to achieve, you know. Yeah. I mean, even things like America and its absolutely abhorrent uh, maternity leave. Uh, I mean, the Scandinavians seem to be getting it right, right? Well, it depends what you mean by getting it right. The Scandinavian countries have always been socialist countries, yeah, so yeah. they've always had socialist leanings. Yeah. Um, so you're always going to get better response to those sort of things in those sort of countries. Yeah. When you get further away from socialism, you're going to get the opposite. Mm. And that's the way the world works. Whether that... But I mean, I think, I think that what we're starting to realise as a, as a where we're at, certainly in the developed world, is that let's just say the market deciding business, all that kind of stuff being the dominate, dominant versus maybe big government and systems in place where you, you, you do look after the poorest and you do look after women when they have a child, they don't have to you know rush back to work. We surely are moving more towards that kind of a solution, I hope, or are we? <laughs> That's the massive question, isn't it? Because yeah. some of those countries, there's massive suicide rates, there's massive social issues. You know, it doesn't mean to say they've got it right, yeah. just because they're giving... I was in Norway recently, in Oslo, which is ridiculously expensive, but they have a huge grumbling underbelly there, heroin problems, everything gets Lutheran-like swept under the carpet, Singapore style. Yeah. I guess if there was an absolute answer, we, we, we wouldn't be sitting here talking on this podcast. We'd have written a book and we'd be making lots well, of money. Well, yes, and... Um, these questions are, are massive questions. I feel I take a different view on it to most people. I think we have to become more global, but we have to become global in a different way than we have historically. I don't think globalisation means that everyone has to be the same colour and have the same creed, but somehow we have to become a world, a one world. That's the only way most of these issues are going to be resolved. You know, so do you include things like federalism, the EU? Yes. So eventually one 
Pangea-like planet where... Um, I think there has to be some sort of structure that allows most of these issues to be not controlled, but um, resolved to the best resolution. And until we can get a point where one country is not robbing another, one person is not robbing another, or one person is doing exceptionally better than another for no reason. You know, I got born in a working class environment in the north Mm. of England, but I am so lucky that I wasn't born in a, a swamp in India, gutter in yeah, yeah, yeah. India or somewhere. You and know? yet, the, and yet, the Trump message clearly is isolationist, pullback, yes. so, and it's it's not socialism. Yeah, it's feudalism. It's well, not, it's something from the Middle Ages, almost. And that's why I say that you shouldn't do it to the expense of an identity. People should be allowed to be who they are within mm. this framework. This is just a kickback of people of my sort of ilk who don't feel like I do, hanging on to the last remnants of an old world. Trump is not going to survive with 20-year-olds. Brexit wouldn't have happened if we'd asked all the under-25s to vote in the UK. The younger generation don't believe in isolation. They believe in truth and exposing what the reality is in the world and getting truth and allowing everyone to have a reasonable existence. If there's a framework to allow that, then we're going to get somewhere. Well, for every Trump we have, and I think the issue with Trump is he will, as long as he doesn't blow the planet up, uh, first, he will. He, he has activated and got America talking. In Ireland, we have our first homosexual uh, prime minister who's in his 30s. I don't think we've ever had a... Forget about the fact that he's gay. I don't think we've ever had a prime minister in their 30s. Yeah. He's hard right, hardish right, but he's trying to listen to young people because he knows he's in, he's in it for another 20 years. Yeah. Trudeau in, in, in Canada and, and Macron in, in, in France are examples of I think, yeah. emerging from the flames or the, the crap that everyone's giving out about, which I think is positive. Yeah, very. Going back to your late teens and early 20s, did you go to college? I didn't go to university as such, just higher education, which sort of showed that I could apply myself. Mm-hmm. But I was quite late doing that. I didn't have much preparation that normal people through good schooling would have had. You got into construction, okay? You talked back earlier about gathered around the fire and your brothers and sisters all saying, we're going to get into business and we're going to get a building and we're going to get out of this. You became a bit of a celebrity yeah. in the building industry in England when you were a young, a young lass. Yeah, well, I had no option in my house other than to go and work. So, you know, from the moment I finished, the next week... I think I was pumping fuel in a fuel station, filling shelves in a supermarket. You know, that was it. I had to And that was a pretty consistent, that's it now for the next 30 years. Have a few children, get a house. <laughs> Were you yeah, thinking well, that, that way? No, 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 not at all. And it was interesting because even lowly jobs like that, there was something different about me because people... I don't know why. You're a joker. But I was filling the, the shelves and I had to stack everything in its most appealing way. I just <laughs> had this thing they always used to say, can you put all the cling film over the fruit and stuff? Can you make it look all pretty in the things to go on display? So I was always trying to sell something. Yeah. Even in the filling station, I was always sort of asking them for challenges on how many cans of oil I could sell with the fuel and... <laughs> I think it's just a personality thing. Yeah. Where do you think that came from, though? Because that's not your dad and it's not really your mum. You know, where is, where is no, I don't, I don't know um, why I developed that. It's always been very strong in me because if I'd probably had to stay at that sort of level, my dream job was always going to be to be a window dresser. I like form and um, design, but I, I didn't, so I had to go out I had those jobs and then I was applying for a five-day-a-week job. 
someone advertised for someone, a hire desk clerk, that it was called, renting machinery out. Company were starting a new branch. So I went to work for them and my boss was coming down from Manchester and the office was in Stoke and he said, well, I need you to start it. We're going to send all these machines down and you need to hire them out. He just gave me the Stoke-on-Trent yellow pages were two volumes. So I just put them on my desk and said, I need you to call everyone until you rent them all out. (laughs) So I sat in an office on my own for months and I rang through both volumes twice over. And I, I think I was beginning to make myself quite ill because I was so isolated. And we started hiring things out, diggers and forklift trucks and all sorts of things that I'd find someone to send them to. Mm. I think they were just sick of getting leaflets from me or whatever I was yeah. doing. And then my boss said, I said, look, I, I don't know that I can stay in this office any longer. I'm feeling quite ill. And I think I'd been to the doctors and said, I'm feeling quite claustrophobic. Yeah, and getting yeah. myself in a bit you of You weren't state. interacting with anyone except on the phone. Right? No. Yeah. He said, well, take my car and go and sell something to someone <laughs> face to face. He sounds like Arthur Daly. So I got in, <laughs> he had an Austin sort of A40 or something. And I got in it, it was diesel. And I drove to the RAF base in Stafford. And I pulled up at the gatehouse and said, I'm trying to sell some forklift trucks. (laughs) (laughs) And they said, okay, park your car over there. So I went to park the car and you couldn't, I didn't know how to stop it because I didn't stop the button. Did you crash it? No, no, to turn it off. To turn it off. So the guy came from the gatehouse and helped me to turn my car off. Nice. And then I, I ended up going in to see someone who I eventually sold some forklift trucks to. But it went from there, so I became a rep, and I got the branch going, and it worked very well. So then they gave me a branch of my own, I moved to Burton-on-Trent, and it was the most successful branch from a nothing You're start. a baby. There's a will to win, and I think me selling more than anyone yeah. else was my way to prove to me that I was better. And I think I always wanted to do the right thing by the people I was working with. And I always wanted to be the best I could be. When I opened Burton-on-Trent, as a 20-year-old female, talking to guys in the workshop about, you know, whether we should replace an engine or whether we could just get away with changing parts of it and trusting that the lads... I mean, my boss made me study engineering you know so I could look at an engine and at least say what it needed um, but the at that sort of age I don't know anyone that would have been willing you know I, I had forklift trucks rented to most of the breweries that were using them on what they call triple shifts and I remember many nights them ringing me and me taking not a low loader but a, a truck that you could lower a forklift truck off the back of it and delivering them into them if one of our trucks broke down. I don't know anyone that would go out 12 o'clock at night and do that. Um, As a young female, most people couldn't winch a truck onto the back of a truck and take it out. I don't think I could get a man to do it. I don't think I could probably (laughs) do it today myself. Um, But that pleasing the client and Mm. the client delivery has always been that will to win against all my competitors and deliver some sort of service that was beyond the call. If it could be done, I've always done it. At this stage now, you're starting to say, hey, I'm quite good. Yeah. Yeah. And what did did your family all say? Look at this little pipsqueak. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, my family have always been a little bit sort of... Um, nervous <laughs> nervous would be one thing but um, my siblings soon yeah. didn't really relate to me were I don't, you getting above your station yes <laughs> um, as the youngest I think it was always hard to be doing some of the things I was doing yeah. going on from Burton, the Burton office when they moved me down to head office in Taylor Woodrow they were flying me around in either helicopter or yeah. plane most days from branch to branch, 
that's pretty sort of up yourself to yeah. anyone outside of... Were you loving this? I liked it in one way, but the men were out to, to kill me in the company, so it was a very lonely road. Of all the times in my life, that was the most vicious that I've experienced, and I started dressing in trouser suits and trying to be one of them. You know, they'd say, oh, so you're gay and well yeah. it, it wasn't gay then I can't remember what they it was much yeah. worse terminology yeah. than gay I think if not I would have been sleeping with someone to get there whatever they could do to harm me and internally in yeah. your own business yeah so they were destroying me I became a manager of a business in Taylor Woodrow so mm. at a stupidly young age really and there was no other female either in our organisation or in the industry so there was no one to refer to. I was trying to chart my own way and making a lot of mistakes from you know how I dressed, how I you know whatever I did it was impossible to know what the Well I wouldn't know what to do I mean yeah the pantsuit idea sounded cool but then. Well, yeah but I was just trying to be one of the boys. Makes you, yeah if that was the rock you had the hard place of the working class background that you don't you're not supposed to be doing that for them either mm. yeah wow okay so then you you you're hitting some home runs a lot of home runs you've been nominated for business woman of the year or was it and finalist and finalist because even at this stage and we differ in this regard you were also buying houses you're getting into it. you were charging in yeah. not just in your job but into life what was the spark that did that I was just that's just I had money coming in and I had to invest it or what was it you know I probably had my first house at about 18 it had just been been instilled in me to get your own house then being from the north of England yeah that was what you were driving to do so you yeah. didn't rent anywhere I don't remember ever renting anywhere as soon as I left home I put the smallest yeah. possible mortgage Amazing. down. Yeah. You know, it's just a terrace, small house. Yeah. But I think also the adversity, as much as it's painful yeah, yeah. at the time, you and never want to go back there again. No. All the mistakes I've made, I've learned very quickly never to make them again. Some of them I keep making, but most of the things that I got wrong, mm. I've learned and now... I can deal with life a lot easier or that sort of thing. As much as it's painful, it makes you who you are, you know. Stronger, yeah. And I've had so much adversity. There are not many people that have grown up being on their own at five in a house in the dark, not knowing if anyone's going to come home and feed them or look yeah. after them or... Yeah. if everything's going to be all right yeah. ever again. And then, you know, taken down to the Salvation Army handout place and said, choose some of these second-hand shoes, which yeah. ones <laughs> are, are the best for you to wear. And going to school and people ribbing you about how awful your clothes and... Yeah. Well, you, 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 I mean, I had a similar, you know, not as bad as that, but I mean, I, I felt alone and independent from a very early age. It was me against the world, and it was just that I didn't feel I could rely on anybody. But it was, it was, so, it was almost like you're going to have to work this one out yourself. I didn't respond like that in any way. I'm my mother's daughter. I, I think a lot of things I do are very similar to my yeah. mother. I never dwell on anything. I don't think I ever assessed it like that. It was just something that had to be got on with. It was a very northern attitude. You just get on with it. At some point, you're going through this career and you're being really successful. And you're mixing in business places and you're you know, able to party and you're able to buy houses. As this was all developing, did you have a feeling that you were going places? Did you have a long-term vision? Um, some of it didn't seem real. I just kept ploughing on. You know, I think to my detriment in some ways, I've always been more of a doer than mm. a thinker. I think if I'd planned things strategically, I would have got further than just doing. You know, like most people are either a strategist or they're an executor. 
my point is that I often do too much myself. Like I will clear every email in my email box rather than doing what I need to do and then going and do something else. It's just a personal thing that I will always respond to everyone within Mm. a number of hours. Careful what you say now. So I do. (laughs) It's um, just my... Um, ethics that I have that I but I mean I, I also think that you know there's a lot of people who I know that you have given your time to who particularly women who are struggling or who, who, who need guidance and you're very generous with your time to, to people like that and no not a lot of people know that about you because you know mm. it's um, so so then moving on how do we get to you eventually saying okay you know what I need a new challenge and you moved to Australia because this was I remember it Perth, very clearly right? no, no I, sorry. the original change I remember it very clearly I was demonstrating some machines at Heathrow Airport um, I had a white suit on for some obscure reason so obviously I hadn't tamed myself at that stage um, and it was raining I had a hard hat on I got one of the machines wouldn't work so I was trying to deal with an oil leak I had oil on my white suit I was wet so um, I walked into a recruitment company and said I don't suppose you've got anything for an oddball like me it's surprising people talk about you know career planning and all the rest of it Um, I was just driving along a road and drove past a recruitment company and went in and they said, well, why don't you come and see our managing director um, and talk to him? So while I was sitting there, um, they rang their managing director, who was an amazing guy called Lawrence Rosen, one of the greatest um, change makers in the recruitment industry. Mm. And I went to see Lawrence and... There was no going back, really. Um, but wait, did you have a CV? No. You just pulled into a random recruitment company and just yeah. said hi, and then he's, presumably someone said, well, what do you do? And he said, well, Yeah, I, was... I should have kept her name, actually, because she changed my whole life, really. <laughs> so she arranged an appointment, and I think I went to see him the next day or very soon after. And then you quit by the end of the week? And... Yeah, Lawrence... Um, did a very sort of unusual interview with me. He asked me what sort of things were on the wall of my house. He said multiply something like 75, 75s and sort of weird questions. And he gave me the job and I didn't see him for some, some time after. And when I asked him, I said, what, what on earth would you ask me things like that for? And it was all about what were my descriptive abilities like how could I sell or could I talk about you think in your feet yeah and in terms of the multiplying an impossible equation he was saying if I'd get aggro and say what did you ask me that for or if yeah. I'd try and work out the seven sevens and the five fives yeah, yeah, or the yeah, sort of like yeah. if I tried to do it in my head as yeah. a long equation yeah which is what I did um, I'm still working on it here. So he was trying to <laughs> see if I could logically work through to an approximate answer yeah. or at least find my way through it. It was very interesting that he assessed me like that. And I worked for him for a number of years. He tried to stop me going to Australia and it's always been interesting. If so I what was the spark to Australia? I went and had a visit to Australia. A friend of mine had um, gold mining machines. I didn't like taking holidays and the company, the recruitment company I worked for said you've got to take yeah. a break. Why yeah. didn't you like taking holidays? I couldn't see the point. I right. didn't know what I would do if I went on holidays. Right. So um they said well you're gonna have to go so I went to this friend and said I need to do something you know and they said well go out to South Africa and sell me some of these gold mining machines and I said I don't like the idea of South Africa and they said we'll go to Australia then so I went to Australia and when I came back I was telling one of the other managers at the recruitment company where I'd been and what I'd been doing and he said well we're going to open up in Australia would you like to go back So again, it was a very random discussion. Um, He sent me the application form, I applied and they gave me 
the gigas, they say. I mean, I remember you telling me the stories of Perth at that time, just crazy, crazy time, yeah? Yeah, it was just after the America's Cup. You know, America's Cup when Australia won it in America and they then brought it back to Perth. So that's why they sent me to Perth, basically, because it was going to be a hot place to be. Yeah. (laughs) I created two sizable branches there, which was fabulous. And you just said the money sloshing around that area at the time was crazy, yeah? Oh, it was a mad place to be. I, you know, shared an office with a guy who was in gold mining and he said, have you brought any money over from England with you? And I said, well, I think I've got about 100 grand or something. And he Mm. said, well, take this stock. It's 20 cents shares with a 20 cents with an option. And I didn't do it. And it Mm. went from 20 cents to $12 in like 12 weeks. (laughs) I could have just given up then and not worked. (laughs) Ever again, but that, that wasn't the um, that wasn't the idea. It was great fun. It's a long way from Cheshire now, to <laughs> isn't it? It's beginning to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then what was the next big thing? Then they moved me over to Sydney to run Australia, New Zealand, mm. and Asia. I worked very closely then with the guy that had moved from um, the UK. He unfortunately got um, very bad cancer, eventually passed away. But during the time that he was sick, he became very difficult to work with. And one day just accused me of something stupid. I put my keys down on the table and said, if you feel like that, you can have my keys and I'll give you my desk back. And then I realised the keys to the house and the car and everything were on <laughs> Yeah, there. you have to store them out. Come back, like, can I just take three of those keys off that key ring? Sorry, I need them to get in tonight. Sorry, otherwise, stick your fucking job. Yeah. <laughs> so I packed everything up. I'd married an Australian prior to this and I'd split up with him. I packed all my things into a container, got on a flight to England and arrived with my best friend, Um, So she said, you're doing some very strange things. Can you take a pregnancy test? And I said, well, they told me I could never have children, so that's silly. And she said, well, just do it for me. So I was sitting, drinking a cup of tea, waving a clear blue stick around. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? And they said, what does a blue line mean? So I went back to Australia. I stopped the container. I often wonder if the container had already been on the ship. Yeah. Um, my whole life might have been different. I might have had a chain of recruitment companies in the UK. Yeah. So I went back to Australia. The marriage didn't work still. We, we had another go at it, but it didn't work. So I had to do something. And Julia Ross was born out of that adversity in terms of me knowing that no one was going to give me a high-powered job while I was pregnant. It's funny. that I mean, so that is the narrative that you've had all your life, the barefoot and pregnant in Sydney. And I think there were just two or three of you in an office and you needed some money for fax machines and people were, oh, no, no, I don't want to give you any money. And you were giving them cuts of the company and they didn't want it. And yeah. Were you, so you've, 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 your marriage is broken up, you're pregnant with James. So um, hello, James, if you're listening. James, a mm-hmm. 28-year-old son of uh, Julius, who's a great guy. Were you scared? I wasn't scared to start off with once I was working. I was scared when I was trolling around the streets looking for some office space. And it was sort of July. I remember it being very windy down sort of Pitt Street in Sydney. I was yeah. cold. I wasn't feeling at my greatest. Yeah. So I was in a foreign country, no family, very few friends. I remember feeling very desolate in that situation, but once I actually got into the office and had to get out there and see some clients and sell, I again went into my doing mode. I mean, you got a lot of shit for uh, when you were... Uh, there were all these articles, oh, when she went back to work the next day after giving birth or something. There was all, That was rubbish, right? I mean, there was... There was... Well, eventually when I gave birth to James, he was two weeks overdue. Um, So when they talk about me, you know, having him induced because that was convenient. That's what you do for babies who are two. If he's two weeks overdue, you have to have him induced. Otherwise, I don't actually know what happens, whether you explode or what. (laughs) The baby explodes or you explode. (laughs) (laughs) 
But, you know, yes, I had him induced. The doctor said, so, okay, let's plan this then. When are we inducing yeah. him? And I said, well, can we do it on a Friday? Because yeah. I usually sign the payroll on a Monday. Yeah. <laughs> So that would be most convenient. So yeah. we said, okay, we'll book you in on Friday then. So that was that. Um, so when people talk about me doing that, it was nothing unusual, except <laughs> for most people would have taken a few weeks off. Mm. You know, yes, I was breastfeeding in James. I was like Scandinavia, yeah. Sorry. You know, I was taking him to work with me or his nanny was bringing him to work or I was running up mm. the road. I moved to live next to the office or very close to the office so that I could run home and feed him so I could work and be there whenever James needed me. So it wasn't like he was put out because No, no, of I know, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. It, it's just funny, the, the kind of... Yeah. Because there's a, there's a certain amount of snipey shite that was going on in the background of but the that's telegraph what I'm and the eastern suburbs. And this yeah, perception yeah. of women and this... Probably if I heard someone inducing a child... John Singleton induced his own child from his own womb. <laughs> which you probably would have done anyway. No, but yeah. But a woman doing that is considered to be such a bad human being. Yeah. It's quite normal. Yeah. James didn't suffer in any way. Yeah. Whether I had him induced on the Thursday, the Friday, or the following Monday really didn't matter to him. Well, um, most of those guys, if they were the ones giving birth, would try not to be at the birth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> If exactly. they could somehow manage it. Yeah. So the other thing I just wanted to ask you about this, uh, you were pushed into having to set up a business against your will in a country that you were planning to leave. When I was working with you in, in the 2000s, Julia Ross Recruitment was a very well-developed brand. It stood for something a little bit cheeky, a little bit different from the big corporates, uh, fun place. What about you tell us? You're it was a very responsive business. I'd come out of Pink Collar. But the whole idea was to take your business very seriously and deliver excellence, but not take yourself too seriously. So I took the office on in late 87. The crash happened and it took about a year for it to filter through to the job market. So I started in an impossible time. It was decimated. So while you've got major players being decimated, it was virtually impossible to sell as a new provider yeah. when they were trying to look after their own suppliers, you know, and it was born out of adversity again, um, thinking about how am I going to compete in this mm. environment where everyone's really closing their doors and not employing, how am I going to get the little bits of business there are? Mm. And I thought the only thing I can do is bring fun to people. So whether it was them ringing and us telling them the joke of the day or whether it was my singing receptionists yeah. or any of the silly things we did, they made people feel good about ringing us. So the whole idea was when a person dealt with us that they felt better for the experience. Yeah. If they go away feeling good, they'll come back again. Yeah. If we not only do what we're supposed to do and supply them with a superb person fast, if we do that really, really well, better than anyone else, Plus, they feel good about the experience with us. Things, it's a very simple recipe. Yeah, it is. But I thought about things like we trademarked an idea called Brecky Temps. If a client rang us and their switchboard operator or someone who was urgently needed went sick, rather than having to wait for someone to come from home, get dressed and yeah. be two hours... I could have them sitting in my office and give them breakfast while they waited for work right. so they could be with the client within 10 minutes. And I paid them for four hours yeah. whether they worked or not. Yeah. They went home if they didn't get work, but yeah. most of them did. Most of those clients, when they had a, a requirement like that, would ring me. Why wouldn't they? When you sold the business, and, and being a guy who works in advertising, when you talk about brecky temps, you talk about... You know, coming in at Christmas time and half the girls are wearing, our guys are wearing antlers or whatever and they're having fun and used to always 
want to make sure that your Christmas party was the best Christmas party in Sydney and people can bring their partners and little things like that. That's the thing when the people come in and buy you go, okay, we can save 285 Aussie dollars on antlers this year. Let's mm. put a line through that. You know, they're, they're, yeah. they're, 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 so we can streamline this operation, make it more money making by taking away all the tiny little things that make you the brand that you were. You well, know? the antlers were very important <laughs> on a number of ways. That's a good name for your book. Because <laughs> the people wore the antlers so that we would know they were talking to a client. Oh, that's right, yeah. So if a person... They were form and function. Yeah, if a person was on the phone and they had their antlers on or whatever they had on yeah. their head, it could be Brilliant. anything. They had bobbles, they had yeah. bunny ears, they had whatever they felt like. But if they had something on their head, you knew they were talking to a client. Yeah. There was a number of things that was great about that. It stopped people going up to them and interrupting them, yeah. so they wouldn't ask them a question while they had something on their head. But it also told me how many people on the floor were talking were to clients. clients. Yeah. And That's doing, the evil machinators. Oh, why are you, your, your antlers haven't been on for half an hour. <laughs> So it <coughs> but was, it was a fun place, wasn't it? I mean, well, it was, was a very motivational thing to look over the floor and look at everyone with something on their head and think True. all of them are talking to someone selling yeah, something, yeah. which was amazing. It was such a motivational environment, not just for me to look at that, but yeah. for everyone to look at one another. And yeah. in the end, the people that hadn't got something on their head would be a little bit Headless. on the outer <laughs> so it was very fun and there were so many things in the company that were like that you know we had thank god it was monday so <laughs> when people came into the office on monday morning they got a vote what they wanted to have for lunch and we ordered lunch in for everyone and everyone was allowed one glass of champagne it's a, you know it's a, a bugbear of mine as you know about the ad industry because the, the culture of a company is critical for the quality of the, the ideas that you make, in my view. And as soon as you start pulling back on stuff like that, that doesn't, it, it just sends the wrong signal. It just means, oh, we're becoming corporate, we're becoming, we're, we're not allowing playfulness, we're not allowing adventure, we're not allowing spirit yeah. or spiritful people to th thrive and, and, and uh, flourish in, in, in our organization. I mean, that's what's killed the art business, you know. I mean, but it was a moment in time. I don't know that today's younger people would aspire to do that. To have standard operating procedures and people adhere to them is virtually impossible. Right. A youngster now will say, well, I think I know a better way of doing it. They will want to change whatever you do, and then when they screw it up, they hand it back to you to <laughs> fix it. We have bred a generation of people that it's been great to teach them to ask why, but it would have been good to do a little bit of teaching them that sometimes there is a known way of doing things, and sometimes it's good to just adhere to that. I understand that we're not going to get great creativity unless we do allow people to think outside of the box. But there's an amount in the world that has to be created through a box. You know, people go and work in factories and do repetitious work. Sure. But once you put someone in an environment where there's a computer screen or they can look at their phone, uh -huh. it's very hard for them to stick with some sort of procedure. Creative people now are not necessarily as disciplined as they were then. The other thing I thought you did well, and it's a big bugbear of mine, I've only ever been, in all the myriad jobs I've had, I've only ever been placed by a recruiter once. I felt that there was a Rolodex going on behind the recruiter thinking, yeah. Is there anything for Sean here, Noah? Then I'll just glaze over and let him talk. There was no real feeling from recruiters that they had your best interests in mind. Yeah. And I thought you did a... You always talked about that, and you always tried to see if there were ways that you could... I think you used to talk about having candidates for life so that, that you would manage their careers, not just yeah. their next job. Has but that bit taken hold, or is it... Got that, that's about the leader demonstrating that, though. You know, yeah. that's about me being prepared to walk through reception and seeing someone standing waiting to be looked after and saying what why is that person standing at the desk yeah. so that's driven by leaders and inculcating that desire to care about people 
And sometimes it's hard decisions because when we became bigger and we were dealing with volume clients, people would say, well, we can't afford to have so much hands on this client because they're not giving us enough margin. And it's up to the leader if the leader's prepared to say, well, we can't deal with them then, you know, because that's not our brand and our brand doesn't sit with that. There was a lot of stuff like staying open till eight o'clock at night, not only for appointments, but to have the door open yeah. up until eight o'clock at night so anyone can walk in for an appointment. Yeah. How is it we're the only recruiter that does that, that we get the best candidates? Because the best candidates care about where they're working now. They don't want to leave their job in the middle of the day and come for an interview that may run over their lunchtime. They don't want to do that and let their current employer down. That's why we get the best people yeah. coming to have interviews out of hours. That, of course, then demands a premium, though, because you've got to employ consultants out of hours. You've got to keep the branches open. There's an infrastructure cost involved in that. Yeah. And once you start saying, well, we'll stop doing that then the world starts yeah. falling apart and the brand yeah. doesn't stand for anything different. And I think that's what I, I noticed when when you when you sold, that it gets subsumed. They're, they're buying business, but business won't stay. Well, oh. there, was, there was no brand. The CEO of the new group that I sold to never asked me anything about the company. See, that's hilarious. And about a year after I'd gone, I heard that he'd sent an email because obviously they weren't doing very well, and asked someone if they could explain what the Julia Ross experience was. <laughs> and all of those things were what we termed the Julia Ross experience. And everyone knew all those commandments, what they were. Mm. And it took him a year to ask the question, and I don't think they ever implemented any of it. So to fill in some gaps here, Julia built the business up from 1988, to around about 2000 where you went public what was the thinking behind that well at the time it was the thing to do to prove that you were legitimate and your clients could take you as being solid i don't think it was um beneficial but everyone sort of convinced me that as soon as i'd listed i had started acquiring other companies which yeah. i did and that was disastrous. From there on in, I was recouping from a bad acquisition. The acquisition damaged the heritage brand because they didn't do anything terribly well. Yeah. And they walked around their and offices. You can't force you on them either. No, and they walked around their offices saying those stupid Julia Ross people with down the, the road. With the antlers. With their hand antlers, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Um, Two stories from that time that really struck me. One was, you know, whatever the brand image was in, in, in the, the socialite image, at the very core, I know that there's a authentic person of integrity in you, which I've known for many years. But you came to the, you came out to meet us and you just literally got, you sold half your company and you had, you had to give them a bank account number. And it was like, you know, your West, it's like the one that has your ATM card on it. <laughs> And so you, she went public that day and she came out and said, there's just 30 million has disappeared in my bank account. <laughs> Which I thought was lovely because it's just like, yeah, where does the money go? Uh, do you want my bank account number? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, do you want the one from my ATM? Yeah. So, and we had a good laugh that night. But I mean, that was, I mean so apart to the cash windfall. But again, you, you didn't need the money at the time. You were, you were, you were I didn't wealthy. touch it for several years. And you didn't take a salary for many years. <laughs> I know. <laughs> or holidays. Um, yeah, I was one of the rare people that um, didn't do it for the money. Yeah. It was to prove to people, which was a stupid thing to do, because it was an impossible thing for an entrepreneur to run a company after listing. And I've read lots of books about it now, how entrepreneurs sense things, they feel things, they know in their gut what's the right thing to do. Well, Apple's the best example. I mean, Scully came in and, and kicked Steve yeah. Jobs out, you know, after they initially launched. And it took him to come back before Apple. If you ask an entrepreneur to write a long report about why they should do it, they lose the will to live. And yeah. They just can't do it. It's something that they feel. You floated and you, it was a successful float, 
you then sold the business to this company we talked about. You came back here. We've come full circle. A couple of things before we go. The, 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 the personal toll or your personal life, you've been a very driven business person. How has, you know, now, now that you, you've had time to kind of sit back and evaluate and look back, where, 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 what lessons would you pass back on, on uh, that um, side of things? I think that I probably didn't pay enough attention, not in the way that most people would expect, um, saying, did I pay enough attention to relationships or to my son or um, my own well-being? I don't think I slowed down enough to consider what was beneficial to me, how, how I should play my life outside of work. There was little importance given to that in my head. So I could have made my life a lot easier if I'd thought, well, okay, I'm driving this business. I need a nice, quiet, stable person (laughs) to be in a relationship with. Mm. And this is what's going to fit together with the life I'm going to have. If I'd been a bit strategic over my personal life instead of waging... strategic over... Well, lots of, people, lots of people are. Lots of people spend much longer getting to know somebody right. and deciding if they fit into their life yeah. rather than raging ahead with, you know, just what feels good at the time. So I think I could have paid attention to what was going to help my well-being through my life and I could have charted a different course if yeah. I'd thought about it. And that's been a theme of my life all the way through, I think. Now the habits are too ingrained to change, I think. But if, if I was advising a career-minded woman now, I would probably advise very differently on how to treat your personal life. Suggesting that you think about the sort of things you need from a partner to make your life enriched. Does that sound a bit clinical? No. I don't mean it in that way. Obviously, the chemistry has to be right and the relationship has to be right. right. But I think you can take your time understanding if a person is going to work with you instead of falling in love randomly with someone and then trying to change them and hammer them into what hole you want them to be in. You know, you could think about what type of person is going to fit and wants the same things that you want in life. Particularly if you want to be a heavy career female, you have to have a certain man to work with you. Do we ever stop saying something like, particularly if you want to be a heavy career female? Do we ever stop doing that? Um, Well, one would hope so, but it doesn't work like that, does it? A woman, unfortunately, is always, nine times out of ten, going to work harder than a man in every way. She's going to work harder inside and out of her working life, her home life. She's going to have more expectations put on her and more demands than a male in the equivalent situation. More responsibility always falls on the female. What do you say, final question to, I'm trying to work out which one, the stacking the shells, <laughs> Julia, from way back, a, a woman who's in that position now, but who does believe? Um, very hard. I've been a very lucky person in as much as I started off as a particular person who I recognize. I can identify with who I was. I then charted my way through my life and altered that person and bent that person in various ways to become what was necessary during that journey. I've been one of the rare people, I think, that have been able to find myself again. When people do that, they tend to lose who they were originally. Was that hard? Finding my way back? Yeah. No. There was no way that I couldn't go back there because I understood that the person I'd become wasn't the person I wanted to be and there was no way I could stay as the person that I was in the middle. It wasn't a place 
that was possible for me to stay. I would have lost my soul, um, I would have lost my whole being, which probably would have made me very ill. The progression that as soon as I felt that I couldn't drive a Bentley anymore, as soon as I drove to my home and thought this is ridiculous, the size of where I live, the ostentation around me, the way people grovel to me, everything that's going on around me, the more that became unacceptable in every way, the more I sat in meetings that people said things that I could not listen to without responding to, I couldn't keep quiet any longer about things that I found were unjust or you know, just not nice stuff. Yeah. Um, the more I had to remove myself from that environment. Mm. I didn't do a great gameplay of extracting myself from the business. I've made enough money, but I could have made a lot more. I yeah. could have played it a lot better on the way out. But there was no option for me. I had to get out and I had to get out pretty quick. Once I turned and couldn't, didn't like myself and didn't like what I stood for, didn't like what the company was doing anymore, and the decisions I had to make as a public company to hurt people, I had to get out. And my son often says to me, you wouldn't be alive today, Mum. Being able to make some tough decisions on the way is different than moving away from your core beliefs. Yeah. If you can stay who you are inside and hold true with your core beliefs and values, it's okay being able to play the game. When I've had to say, well, it's okay if I have to use a man to go in and see that client because yeah. he's going to relate better to a man than me, so be it. That's just playing the game. But when you have to start bending your values and becoming a different person, that is something that I don't think anyone should ever do. So if I was talking to the young Julia again, I'd say just be true to who you are and stick with your beliefs and values. And, you know, just don't bend yourself too far out of shape. That's a good place to end it. Thank you so much for having me <laughs> home and a lovely bottle of wine, a great chat. And I learned an awful lot about you that I didn't know as I usually do on these things. Julia, the best of luck in the future and thanks for coming on the Pine Show Thank you.